everyone, and welcome to Students Speak on the System, the education-focused podcast covering overlaps in technology, structure, and current events. My name is Arjun Dimne, and I am your host. So today we have a pretty special episode. Uh, I have um, a fellow Conrader with me. His name is Omar, so I'm going to let him introduce yourself. Go ahead. Hey, everyone. My name is uh, Omar Imtiaz. I participated in the Conrad Challenge last year. Um, and I've been innovating all my life, you know, trying to make a difference, make a change. Uh, and a lot of it has focused on education. So I guess the, that's why I'm here today. Yeah, he's also a fellow uh, podcaster. So why don't you go into a little bit about like what you do on your podcast and um, why you started one? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my podcast is called The Young Innovator. Uh, and I really started it because prior to my experience with the Conrad Challenge and a few other competitions before then, I didn't realize that there was this community of, you know, people who are changing the world in college or high school, and even, you know, a few in middle school. So I really wanted to explore their stories and get them out in the world to show what our generation is doing uh, to sort of make an impact. Uh, so now I'm on my uh, second episode. The third episode will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, and I've sort of just been working on getting interviews for that and getting everything sorted for the past few weeks uh, just to see how I can maximize the impact of what it is that I'm trying to spread. Yeah, and what I really liked that you said was like in the very beginning, you said that you didn't understand that there was a community of literally like people from middle school to college who are changing the world. Um, and I've kind of explored this. It's kind of like a, like a resource gap. If you don't look it up, you don't look up like entrepreneurship competition or if someone doesn't come to you and like through word of mouth, you won't hear about these types of things. And even though you have that ambition and like initiative within you, it's kind of hard to find these things as a high school student or middle school student. So what do you think is a way that we can like start fixing this, I guess, resource gap or like get these uh, competitions and resources out to more students? Vain about, you know, how to solve these problems got my mind rolling about this in general and it all built upon itself, you know, culminating in, uh, you know, my most recent experiences. So I think, you know, one of the main things that schools and educators should focus on in terms of spreading the word and getting this community built even within individual schools would be you know requiring students or not requiring but integrating these opportunities into the curriculum and you know finding ways for them to get these opportunities without needing to go outside you know looking it up forming stuff on their own initiative you know it's the same thing as with sports mm -hmm. uh, you want students to be athletic then you start sports teams at the school. You know, you don't want people running around looking for this stuff because once you have the full resources of an institution behind you, you know, the power you gain is actually magnified. Oh, yeah, I agree. So is that, I kind of, kind of goes with my like second question. It's just, uh, how do you think that we can like fit entrepreneurship within the education system without, I guess, changing too much? Because if I guess we both know, like we look at the education system and change rarely happens. It's because all the bureaucracy you have, all that administration, superintendents, everyone on top of them, and it has to go through this whole line. So do you think there's an easy way for these teachers to just say like, 
instead of this project or instead of this, we can do something that has the entrepreneurial spirit within it. And even at like an elementary school to a high school level. Yeah. So um, I'll just actually, I guess, walk you through how my school did it. Cause I think, um, you know, they did it in a pretty sensible way. And then I'll talk you through how maybe we could build upon that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going back to middle school, uh, it was integrated into the curriculum. There was time set every day um, for a few months during the year to work on that project. Um, and then, so, you know, sixth grade, I had that Alzheimer's cure. Uh, seventh grade, I had something for car crashes. Eighth grade, I made a vest that's impact resistant, uh, bulletproof. Uh, and so that one made it to the national level. So when it won the regional level and made it to the national level, what my teachers agreed to do was if I continued working on this project at school, um, they would essentially waive certain projects and assignments. Um, so I would be guaranteed 100 in them, and they'd be more for learning for learning's sake as opposed to an assessment with stress on it. Uh, but that doesn't always work in high school, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, going into high school, the way it would work would be, or it worked, was teachers would approach students that they thought would be interested in opportunities. Um, so freshman year, I went to a, uh, my computer science teacher invited me to participate in a hackathon where I made an app that, uh, reads and analyzes literature. Uh, and then, you know, uh, 10th grade, my chemistry teacher approached me and said, Hey, there's a thing for oil and gas in Houston. Uh, why don't you and your team take a look at this? And so we participated in that. And then that sort of branched on with that teacher becoming our mentor for the next few competitions, including the Conrad Challenge. So, you know, in middle school, it was integrating the curriculum. In high school, it was the teachers identified students who would be interested in opportunities um, and then pushed them to take advantage of them. And I think this is a good baseline to start at. But I think this could really be improved upon, you know. I think if it's more integrated into the curriculum, you know, an entrepreneurship diploma, for example, where you take classes at the high school level with problem solving, decision making, you know, those mm -hmm. entrepreneurship skills would really add to that experience. And then I guess schools spreading the word more in the same way there's a debate team. Yeah, that's that's actually really cool. I didn't, um, there's no schools near us that at least does that. There's no, there's, um, there's one like nonprofit organization they're called like network for teaching entrepreneurship and they help out um underprivileged schools and they kind of they give them the tools to become entrepreneurs because they see that like even though we're at like maybe a stem school or something like that we're still learning very like entrepreneurial things but it's there's just not much of an emphasis on it so my next question is like why do you think that right now um like a lot of schools kind of give students this basis of like you should be able to you should have the skills to go into like something into STEM right either if it's computer science or engineering or doing math over like getting a strong base in humanities or like business being able to negotiate being able to network some of these like real life skills why do you think that there's such a gap between these two I guess concepts well, so over the years, there's been a trend in academic institutions, um, you know, at the higher levels and lower levels, both um, away from, you know, philosophies, literature, 
the humanities towards STEM. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sort of changed with the perception of what a university or an education is. Um, so it's no longer necessarily knowledge for knowledge's sake, but treated more as vocational training. So mm -hmm. people are looking to go to college uh, to get a technical or technical training or knowledge in a certain field where once they graduate, they can go straight into a technical field. Um, so that's at the college level. And then in the high school level, they want these kids prepared to meet those schools, the mm. university's demands. And, you know, this is where the money is. And these trends will always follow the money. Mm -hmm. If students are making more money in STEM, then the education system is naturally going to follow suit because more kids are going to want to go to STEM and then those programs are going to get amped up. More funding is directed to STEM programs. And it's sort of a natural consequence of the fact that in our society, um, you know, engineering or computer science are significantly higher paid than, you know, art history or literature. And it's not necessarily that art history or literature are in any way worse. Mm. It just reflects the fact that there's just not as much money in it at this point in time. Oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and that kind of brings me to an interesting point that I, I didn't know if I was going to bring up today. But um, I don't know if you've seen this trend, but it's basically like there are a lot of people who don't want to go to college now. Right. In 2020, a lot of people are saying, like, if you can't go to an Ivy League or like a top 20 ration, like nationally ranked school, there's no really like, purpose in going to college and learning types of things because you can go out there and make money right now. Right. And half of these people are going out and they're like maybe day trading or they're doing like real estate, things like that. Um, so what do you think about this type of trend and how it like, I guess, puts a different perspective on the education system and like in, for higher education after high school? I think in the perfect world, college is not for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. But as it is now, college actually does act and it's been proven by research as an institution that elevates people who are disenfranchised, who are disadvantaged into higher paying jobs. You know, people who don't have college degrees tend to be discriminated against when it comes to finding employment. And if they come from a lower class in, or a household, uh, if they don't have as much income, they're discriminated against even further. And, you know, ideally this wouldn't be the case. Ideally there would be systems in place where people who wanted to get jobs that don't necessarily require a college degree mm -hmm. would be able to get it without a college degree. But given the role of these institutions, I think that college is sort of a necessary evil for the vast majority of people. Uh, because for in a lot of cases, I don't think college is necessarily the perfect choice. But it is what is needed to get them where they need to go. Uh, and I think really what would get us to that perfect world would be a ground up education reform mm -hmm. from kindergarten to elementary to middle to high school targeting those people uh, who are disenfranchised or disadvantaged and lifting them up with the resources they need there so that by the time they graduate high school uh, they wouldn't be at a disadvantage when it comes to looking for jobs or other necessary skills for life mm -hmm. Because um, you go to Thomas Jefferson, right? And, you know, I've met several kids from there and they're all polished. They're all very intelligent. They're all well-spoken <laughs> and they, you know, they do well in school. Yeah. But if you go 
and survey, you know, the hundred nearest public schools besides Thomas Jefferson, I'm sure you wouldn't find that to be the case everywhere. And I think that's more of the problem than college at this point in time. I think college is just a consequence. The root of the problem is the actual, you know, middle and high school experience. Yep. I agree that that's that, uh, education reform for like underprivileged students is definitely needed. And if we don't do that and we don't give them the tools specifically, not even just like, like teach them, uh, I guess like, like math, like the, the simple core curriculum, but more of like things that they'll actually need. Because another thing that I thought was really interesting was like, you go through high school, right? And a lot of these students, uh, if you like survey them, they're going to give out these jobs that they want to do. Like, uh, they want to become mathematician. They want to go into software. They want to go into and become a doctor, things like that. Like very simple things. But right when you go to college, you see a huge spike in interest in like business. You see a huge spike in like entrepreneurial activity, things like that. So I think it'd be really interesting to see how the education system would work with like providing these underprivileged uh, students with, I guess, um, like entrepreneurial resources. They'd really be ready to get out into the world right after high school. Uh, and I mean, I think that would just really like change a lot of people's view on college. Um, and let's go, go to my next question, which is like, where do you see the education system shifting to reflect like new business trends? Uh, and this is kind of like a future question. If you, if you have any ideas of what you think the new next innovation is going to look like, what do you think the education system is going to, how do you think the education system is going to change? Um, well, so you know, I'm not necessarily sure if it's a trend that education is following in business, but there is a trend that both are following at the moment, you know, exacerbated definitely by the pandemic, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the shift to virtual or online resources. Um, you know, it's moving, you know, business was obviously, so sorry, let me rephrase that. Both industries are very reluctant to change. Mm-hmm. And they need some strong impetus to move. Um, if they're not forced to change something that's not broken, they won't do it. And so up until this pandemic hit, you know, a lot of meetings that could have been virtual or could have been emails were not. They were physical. Yep. Um, and I think we're going to see the same thing happening in education where the stuff that can stay online will at least to some extent, be available online now. Um, So it will be more feasible for people to stay online and at home uh, to get these educational resources that they need. But, you know, there's actually an issue that's underlying in this, which is millions of kids in America don't have access to internet. They don't have access to uh, technology. They don't have access to these things. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we really need to solve as a society. Because I remember when this pandemic first started, that was actually one of my first thoughts was, how are those kids going to get educated? And I was sort of brainstorming ideas on how we could get them there. You know, what can I build? What can I come up with? But then I realized something like this needs massive, you know, um, governmental uh, investment. And that's actually when a similar opportunity was given to me. Um, where the state of Texas 
they're they have this thing called Operation Connectivity, where they're giving those underprivileged kids around the state of Texas access to internet and tech, mm-hmm. so that they can join this uh, movement of all these resources to being online. And so I'm helping them out with that now, and I think that is where the next big trends will be. And we need the government to help push us in that direction. Yeah, actually, when the pandemic started, I, I had a very similar experience. Was uh, um, when the pandemic started, my the whole school system basically shut down. Everyone was kind of like confused of what was going on. Uh, I'm part of like Fairfax County Public Schools, pretty large uh, school system. And no one really knew what was going on, what was going to happen with grades, like everything like that. And I guess we li- I live in a bubble, right? My, me and my friends, my school, we're all in a bubble with this whole, uh, like my school is mainly Asian. We're in a, uh, we're not in a great area, but the mo- we have like less than 5% of students are on free and reduced lunch. We're in a, we're in a bubble because everyone was thinking about like, okay, what's going to happen with grades? What are we going to do? Like, if I have a midterm, am I going to have to do that? I have a final, things like that. And I took a step back and I thought like, okay, well, let's think about it from like another student's eyes, right? There has, there's a, there's a whole equity portion here. Sure, I have a MacBook Pro and another computer that my uh, school system gave me, but what about that student who has to like go after school and go work for his family, provide for his family? There's a whole equity portion and I was really hoping that like my county would account for that and they did. Thankfully, they made everything optional and they understood like that if someone had to go and do something, especially now where everyone is like, there's a lot of people losing jobs, things like that. Uh, and they were pretty considerate about that, which was, I was really, really happy about. But uh, it, it was something that's a, a global thing that look, our education system looked at it. And it was like, um, it was disruption, right? Because if you look at even in the business world, when you have disruption, you have innovation. So I'm really hoping that like this time of disruption will be a great time to like innovate the education system. And to go to my last question, it's going to be kind of like a very open-ended question. Uh, if any student wants to start a venture, like you, you've started many things, you're an innovator at heart, how do you think they should start? I mean, there is no one way to start, right? Um, the first business I started, my mom said, well, I've got all this excess um, medical product in the attic of my office. Uh, do you think you could start an Amazon business to sell it? So my sister and I in middle school, we started uh, packing, shipping, setting up the Amazon stuff. You know, we grew that to a substantial size, but that was, you know, at the behest of my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, I've also started a t-shirt company. Uh, I started a company that sells shirts and hoodies designed by AI called slate.ai. And that one was more of, I was watching a YouTube video and I saw, I was learning about convolutional neural networks because I am a little bit of a nerd. Um, and I was like, wait a minute. I think we could apply these concepts to clothing. And, you know, then I did some research. I made some algorithms and I wrote it. I made it happen. I put it online. And, you know, the more I looked into it, the more I realized, you know, even if you're doing something on your own, the resources are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, for selling clothes, there are whole industries that are devoted to getting you off the ground. Um, when it comes to podcasting, as I'm sure you know, there's another whole industry that's getting you off the ground, getting you advertisers, you're know, getting you this sort of stuff so that you can 
do it with minimal um, disruption. Uh, and it, even when it comes to bigger ideas, it's about finding the right place to start. So you could, uh, so for uh, for Conrad, for example, we made an app that uses artificial intelligence to give you feedback on the style of your presentation. Uh, and so we came up with it for the competition, but uh, once the competition was over, we were pointed out to a bunch of resources and we were doing it and we were thinking, wow, this is too big. Uh, we can't do this. Let's put it off till college um, or till after college. And so we didn't do it. But then, you know, earlier this summer, I was, I had a little bit of free time. So in less than a day, I made that app uh, in prototype form. And I think that's really the key of it. A lot of people think that making something, making a business, making an app, making a podcast is this huge monumental task that you can never do. But that's just simply not the case, right? It's the resources are there. The knowledge is out there somewhere. I'm almost certain of it. You just need to put in a little bit of work in the front end and a little bit of time. And I would say in 80% of the cases, uh, you can get it up and running with no major investment, no major institutional support, um, just an idea and some work. And then it's all about outreach, building. And if you have a prototype, it's about finding investment advertisers, you know, uh, ways to raise money. And I think that's really the simplest, not necessarily the simplest, but the best way that you can get started with entrepreneurship. It's great advice, Omar. Thank you so much for uh, answering these questions, getting on this podcast. Um, you want to plug your podcast real quick before we end this? Yeah, sure. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my podcast is The Young Innovator. You can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you can um, look it up on Instagram or Twitter at TY Innovator. Uh, come check it out. I post episodes every two weeks where I interview an innovator. Uh, Arjun will be featured next in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And we talk through their stories and their advice on how to get started with starting a business or innovating in general. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to see how you innovate the world. Um, everyone who's on right now, thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week.